1: Hello and welcome to Killing It, the Crime Cast. I'm Lux, and this is a very special episode because it's not actually going to be our podcast today. So it is Pride Month, and I very much wanted to do an LGBT plus episode, sort of outlining how important LGBT rights are, especially in the true crime community, where oftentimes LGBT plus people are treated as less dead. And in case you don't know what that means, that essentially means that the police don't take as much notice as they should do when investigating the crimes or the public doesn't care as much and instead of doing this episode I'm actually going to let Sinead do her episode and put it on here because I was listening to it the other night and it is just perfect and I don't think I could make a more beautiful and poignant episode than she has so here it is and if you enjoy this episode of hers then please give her a listen on the Mens Rea podcast which is also part of the Nerdly True Crime Network. You're listening to the Men's
2: Rea podcast. And this is the story of Irish Pride. Fear not, though, there is a crime, but we're also going to follow the development of the laws after the crime. I think it's important to see how much has changed legally for a minority group in Ireland and the hard-won rights that Ireland's LGBT community now have. The story is by no means over, and of course there's a lot left to do, but today, a week before Dublin's Pride Festival, I want to tell you about a victim of homophobia and the long legal struggle for LGBT rights in Ireland. The Offences Against the Person Act 1861 and Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act criminalised homosexuality in Ireland along with the public or private commission of, or attempt to procure the commission of, any man for an act of gross indecency with another man. Section 61 of the Offences Against the Person Act outlawed the quote-unquote Act of Buggery, and Section 61 criminalised attempt and assault for the purpose of committing buggery. These laws had been done away with in the UK in 1967, but in Catholic Ireland these laws had been retained, and being gay was not only taboo, but illegal. The gay scene in the early 80s in Dublin was a bit abysmal. There were a few bars, the Bailey on a Saturday, Bartley Dunn's and Rice's, which would both close in the mid to late 80s, upstairs in JJ's for the Dykes, and the George eventually opened in May 1985. The Hirschfield Centre was the main focal point, and there were a number of activist groups popping up in response to the equality movements beginning to spread, post-Stonewall and in response to the HIV-AIDS crisis. But Dublin was a lonely place for gay men and women in those days. Being gay was something that could ruin a career and upend a life if the information fell into the wrong hands. David Norris was one of these early campaigners, and he decided to take a case for equality to the High Court in 1977, After the Dudgeon v. UK case in the European Court of Human Rights had ruled that Northern Ireland's law criminalising homosexual acts was in violation of Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights, the right to privacy. We were part of Europe and had the exact same laws that Northern Ireland did. So surely the Irish courts would have to pay attention to what was being said in Europe for this kind of law. But the High Court rejected his argument that the laws were not consistent with the Constitution, and Norris and his legal team, which included Mary Robinson, future President of Ireland, appealed his case to the Supreme Court. It was a brave act to stick his neck above that parapet, but living in the closet and under cover of secrecy was something that could not continue. People who had made a life for themselves, who had bought homes and established relationships, could lose everything due to the laws in place. There was a knock-on effect to everything, inheritance rights, property rights, and even just the ability to socialise safely with one another. To meet people. As I said earlier, there were very few gay bars in the city at that time, and very few club nights catering to the gay community, so because of this, the stereotypical cruising spots were reasonably popular. St. Stephen's Green in the city centre is the most obvious of spots, but another one was Fairview Park, a short jaunt outside the city centre on the north side, where you could go and wander around and maybe find a companion for a time. The park sits on a crescent of shops and businesses and across from a couple of schools. It's quite large and has playing fields, a bandstand, a playground, lots of trees and swathes of seasonal flowers brightening up the place. But in the summer of 1982, there was a gang roaming the park. They were out so-called queer bashing, attacking the men that dared to go into the park at night time. They would throw them a few digs and rob them, and over that summer alone, 20 or so such attacks took place. On September 10th, 1982, a man's body was found in Fairview Park in the early hours of the morning. He had been beaten and left for dead. He passed away before he reached Blanchardstown Hospital. The young man had been found laying next to the bandstand in the park, only 150 yards from the busy main street of Marino Mart and Fairview Crescent. He was found by two youths who hailed down a passing Gardie. His name was Declan Flynn. He was a 31-year-old man working for Air Reinta out at the airport a good job. He lived in Whitehall and came from a middle-class family. He had five siblings. He was a shy guy and had a bit of a stammer when he was nervous. Pictures of him show a wide, welcoming, happy smile and an open face framed with dark brown hair. His family didn't know he was gay. The perpetrators of this vicious attack couldn't keep quiet. They had been hanging around the park that day with their girlfriends, who eventually went home at about half eleven that night. The girls wouldn't stay when the lads decided to chase the queers around the park. They thought of it as easy money, bash a few queers and rob them. Sure, they're perverts anyway. Who cares? The lads stayed in the park and decided that they would attack some gays that night. They chased one guy across the park, but he managed to lose them when he ran out onto North Strand. The next guy wouldn't be so lucky. Four of them hid in the bushes while a fifth sat on the bench on his own. A man approached and sat down next to him and the other four hiding burst from their hiding spots and chased the man down. He was kicked and beaten and hit with sticks. His watch was taken along with four quid from his pocket. The lads ran off and scattered. They all eventually made their way home. It wasn't long before word got back to them that a guy had been beaten in the park and was dead on arrival at Blanchardstown Hospital. They began to talk. To each other when they could, to their girlfriends, their parents, friends. It wasn't long before everyone was talking to one another, and soon the Gardee turned up at their doors. Five youths were charged with the murder of Declan Flynn. Robert Armstrong, 18, from Plunkett Drive in Finglas, Anthony Maher, 19, from the flats in Ballybach, Colm Donovan, from Lower Buckingham Street, Patrick Kavanagh, 18, from North Strand, and a 14-year-old who could not be named for legal reasons. Robert Armstrong lived with his four sisters and his parents in Finglas. He was in the Air Corps. He had been kicked out of his house at one point by his mother for causing trouble. Tony Maher was also in the Air Corps and his crew cut matched Roberts, who had lived with him after his mother had tossed him out. Patrick Kavanagh and Colum Donovan were both unemployed, though Kavanagh was noted for playing with the Dublin minor team for Gaelic football. On the 1st of March, 1983, their trial began. The 14-year-old pled not guilty, and the others all pled guilty to manslaughter. Sentencing for those guilty pleas were put off until after the murder trial. Armstrong was remanded in custody while the other three young men were put out on bail for the duration of the trial. Mr. Justice Gannon was presiding. First, Senior Counsel for the Prosecution, Mr. Seamus Sorahan, gave his opening speech, stating that Declan Flynn had been discovered by two men in Fairview Park after they had run into Armstrong near the cinema in Fairview, at about 1.25am, and he had seemed agitated. When the two guys got to the bandstand, they saw Declan Flynn lying there and hailed the nearby Gardee, who alerted the ambulance service. A Garda had travelled by ambulance with Mr. Flynn, who had appeared to be choking, but after attempts at resuscitation, Declan was declared dead at 2.20am. He told the jury of seven men and five women that they would hear evidence of Declan's injuries and the Gardy investigation, and evidence that the five accused boys were out that night with the intention of, quote, queer bashing. The jury heard details of the events leading up to the brutal attack and murder of Declan Flynn that night in Fairview Park, and what Declan himself had spent his evening doing before he was set upon. Declan had been out that night in Belton's pub in Dunicarney. His friend had collected him from his home in Whitehall, and they had stayed there until about a quarter to twelve. When they left the pub, his friend saw him head off down Collins Avenue towards Whitehall. Later, though, Declan was seen meeting another friend in the Fairview Grill on the Crescent next to the park, before heading over into the park. Council said that no aspersions would be cast on Declan's character. Lawyers for both sides seemed keen to ensure that no one identified Declan as a gay man. Firstly, the guardee who attended the scene gave evidence. Detective Garda Patrick O'Reilly described running into the park with his colleague and seeing Declan lying on the ground. He was bleeding heavily from the nose and his right eye was bruised and swollen. They noticed sticks lying nearby that had traces of blood on them, along with a bottle and an abandoned bike. John Sheridan, a member of the Air Corps, told the court about running into Armstrong when he was walking home with his friend, Colin McGrane, in Fairview, near the cinema. He described Armstrong as being agitated and having blood on his hands. From the conversation that they had, Sheridan decided to head towards the park. Armstrong followed behind him and pointed over to the bandstand. He said to John, quote, It's just over there. That's when they found the body and alerted the Gardie. The Gardie that interviewed the 14-year-old took the stand next and told of how he had called by the boy's house on the 12th of September, saying he was investigating a robbery of a watch in Fairview Park on the 10th of September. The boy told him that he had been in Dunicarney on his bike on the 10th of September and had been spotted by a Garda who told him to get home. He cycled home through Fairview Park. He told the Garda that his bike had been stolen, but that it was similar to the one found in Fairview Park on the night of the tenth. He then told the Garda unprompted that he had had nothing to do with the murder. He was asked to attend Fitzgibbon Street station. He agreed, and his mother said she'd be along later at the station. The boy told the guardie that he had seen Armstrong and Maher being arrested earlier that day and said that he knew the two young men as he often saw them in the park. The boy was then told that the other two men were also in the station. The boy responded, quote, I'm not a rat. I'll tell you what I done, but I won't tell you who was with me, End quote. The next day, after some legal argument as to whether it should be admitted to evidence or not, evidence was given of what the boy told the guardee in his statement. He had in fact cycled towards home through Fairview Park but when he got there he saw a group of lads he knew who told him to hide in the trees as they were going to do some gay bashing. He watched as one of the other lads sat on a bench waiting for someone to approach him and when Declan sat down next to him they all rushed out, chased the man, tripped him and beat him with their bare hands and with sticks. They grabbed his watch, the boy didn't see any money being taken and then they all scattered. That's when he left his bike, he said. The next day, a forensic scientist gave evidence that samples taken from the boy had proved no match to the material that they had. Evidence was heard about the boy's background. A bench warrant was also issued for another youth, Paul Maher, when he failed to arrive to give evidence. His father told the court that he had no intention of appearing. The defense's case seemed to focus on the idea that the gang had made a mistake, That Declan wasn't gay. They only wanted to attack gay men, and the whole affair was all a huge misunderstanding. There was an undercurrent running through the case that somehow this kind of assault was permissible if the victim was in fact gay. In closing, Kevin O'Hagan's senior counsel told the jury that, given the negative results on the forensic evidence, the case against his client turned on the statement that the boy had given at Fitzgibbon Street Garda Station. Even then, he said, the blow that his client had admitted to landing on Declan's backside could not have contributed to his death. O'Higgins emphasised that he was not casting aspersions on the victim's character, nor was he attempting to justify queer bashing, whatever that was, he said. No one would be justified in acting in an aggressive or violent manner due to someone's inclinations or sexual habits. Mr. Justice Gannon charged the jury and instructed them to find the defendant not guilty of the murder charge as it was not proved. They then retired for three and a half hours and returned with a verdict of guilty of manslaughter. The boy was remanded in custody to St. Michael's Children's Detention Centre in Finglas. Sentencing of all five young men would occur the following Tuesday. Evidence was given of what the gang had been up to the night in the park. They had spent the summer queer bashing and had, quote, battered 20 steamers, end quote. They had tried it on with another man already that night, but this first guy had exposed himself and then pulled a knife when the group approached him. He then made his way off to North Strand. Kapaner said that this was the first time he had been involved in an attack such as this, and he told the court that he thought maybe his earlier experience with the man with the knife had made him jump to conclusions when they confronted Declan. Maybe they had made a mistake about him, he said. Submissions were made on behalf of the boys to the judge. Paddy McEntee, acting for Maher, Kavanaugh and Donovan, said that the young men had been subject to a, quote, shower of propaganda about various minorities, including homosexuals, end quote. Their conduct was out of character, both for them and for the families they came from, he said. They now understood what they had done was wrong. Paul Carney, senior counsel acting for Armstrong, told the court that his client had made attempts to help Declan after the attack by trying to get an ambulance for him, and that because of the incident he was being discharged from the army. Robert Armstrong and Anthony Maher were sentenced to five years. Colm Donovan was sentenced to four years. Patrick Kavanaugh was sentenced to two years, and the minor was sentenced to 12 months. All of these sentences were suspended. None of the men would serve time for the killing, provided they stayed out of trouble for the duration of their sentences. In the wake of the sentencing of the men, the family of Declan Flynn described the five suspended sentences as an insult. They also denied suggestions that their son and brother was gay. They said that there was no way Declan would have approached strangers in the park. They said, "Deck had a bad stammer and was very nervous speaking to people he didn't know. He would have been unable to talk in such a situation." End quote. There were reports in the press of victory parades being held in the areas that the five men were from the day of the verdicts. People were reported as holding banners saying we are the champions and were celebratory and defiant in mood. Mary Harney, then a deputy in the Dole, called on the Minister for Justice to seek the resignation of Justice Gannon. She said it seemed the sentence was unduly lenient. Cases reference to contrast with the trial of the five men included a man who had snatched a purse getting four years and two youths who had gotten nine-month custodial sentences for the theft of bikes. Soon there were widespread calls for changes in sentencing laws, and the matter was debated in the Dole, the Irish Parliament. The Gardaí also came in for criticism. They were accused of ignoring the attacks that had been occurring in Fairview Park. There was a series of gay-bashing attacks that had occurred over the summer of 1982, there were reports that Declan Flynn had even been attacked once before, a few weeks before the assault that had ended in his death. Patrols in and around the park were stepped up, but the Gardaí denied that they had done nothing about reported attacks. They also denied having compiled a list of names of people that they thought might have been involved in what were being described as vigilante attacks. Joe Duffy, then of the Union of Students of Ireland, called for an inquiry into the elitist legal system that had allowed this to happen. An internal Garda inquiry was launched to assess what the Gardee had known about the attacks in the park, and when. The Evening Herald reported on the 12th of March, quote, confirmed today that youths have been waging vigilante war on homosexuals in Fairview Park for the past ten years." But in many of the cases, Gardy had been powerless to act because the victims preferred to remain anonymous, end quote. The public were outraged in a kind of theoretical sense. It didn't seem that justice had been served. The press and media focused on the idea that sentencing laws needed to be overhauled, and yes, this was true. But the gay community were horrified. One of theirs, despite what his family might insist, had been killed by a gang that was known to be operating in the area by the gardie And they were caught and brought to trial and found guilty and set free? Was a gay life worth less than a straight one? A mistake of youth, the court had said. You can hate gays, you just can't beat them to death. Off he's going out and don't do it again, right?' A march was organised for the 19th of March to go from Liberty Hall to Fairview Park at half two. At the bottom of the leaflet distributed to raise awareness of the march, it reads, We demand the immediate repeal of all legislation that defines us as criminals, the support of all political groups with concern for human rights, the participation in this march of gays and non-gays alike. Hundreds of people turned out. Reports vary, somewhere between 400 and 900. I guess it's the same as it is now, it depends on which side you ask. But whatever the number, the turnout was large. Which was a big deal, given that the Norris case had just failed a few years previously, and its appeal was still working its way through the Supreme Court. It would be naive to think that people weren't taking a risk by identifying themselves as gay, or at the very least sympathetic to the plight of Ireland's gay community. On the 22nd of March, the LGBT community suffered another blow. The Supreme Court delivered its verdict in the Norris case. They had rejected his arguments. He had lost, again. But Norris was determined to appeal his case to Europe, like Dudgeon before him. The judgment reads in part, quote, on the grounds of the Christian nature of our state and on the grounds that the deliberate practice of homosexuality is morally wrong, that it is damaging to the health both of the individuals and the public, and finally that it is potentially harmful to the institution of marriage, I can find no inconsistency with the constitution in the laws which make such conduct criminal. It follows, in my view, that no right of privacy, as claimed by the plaintiff, can prevail against the operation of such criminal sanctions." but the courts were certainly not finished with the young men who had attacked and killed Declan Flynn. The minor was out of court for only one week before being brought back before the juvenile court for the theft of a car the previous December. His list of convictions, including the manslaughter of Declan Flynn, was read to the court. He was remanded in custody. The judge blamed the fact that he came from a single-parent home for his law-breaking he was later sentenced to 30 months' detention at a juvenile reformatory, and it was noted by the sentencing judge that he had committed this crime while on bail for the murder charges to which he had pled not guilty. The judge said, quote, One would have thought that the charge would have had a sobering effect on the boy and his parents, End quote. obviously not. By mid April, an inquiry was launched by the Minister of Justice at the request of the Garda Commissioner into how and why the beatings in Fairview Park were allowed to go on, with no reaction from the local Gardee in Clintarf. It was reported that the Gardee had knowledge of the gang roaming the park and its activities as early as May 19th, 1982, despite what the Gardee had testified to in court. The National Gay Federation had even handed in a report of various beatings and robberies that had happened in Fairview Park to the Gardee Two weeks before Declan Flynn was killed. An inquest into Declan's death was held on the 27th of April, 1983. It was concluded that Declan still wouldn't have survived had he been brought to a hospital closer by rather than Blanchardstown, and that when the fire and ambulance services arrived, Declan had no signs of life. The attempts to revive him en route to the hospital were unsuccessful and the only thing that would have saved him would have been somehow getting the blood out of his lungs as he lay near the bandstand in Fairview Park. Impossible. By mid-May, the Garda inquiry into their own investigation had completed. They found that there were reports regarding the attacks in the park and that people had been named as being involved, but they had been checked into and there was no way to connect them to any criminal offence. The guardy were satisfied that they had handled the complaints properly and that they had been thoroughly examined. The National Gay Federation called the inquiry a cover-up. The Flynn family also rejected the report. In June of 1983, the first Pride Parade in Dublin took place. It was organised by the National LGBT Federation and marched from Stevens Green to the historic General Post Office building on O'Connell Street. About 200 people walked the route. In 1986, David Norris had his case heard before the European Court of Human Rights. The judgment was delivered in 1988, and it was found that the Offences Against the Person Act and the Criminal Justice Act did in fact breach his rights to privacy under the Convention, notwithstanding the fact that he had never been prosecuted under either act. The Court decided that the legislation, quote, imposes harms upon certain people that far outweigh any potential social benefit. That certain people are offended by homosexuality is not sufficient grounds to maintain discriminatory laws. The government did not act on this ruling until five years later. The then Minister for Justice, Marie Gagan Quinn, passed a law that not only decriminalised homosexuality, but instituted an age of consent the same as for heterosexual activity. The President of Ireland, Mary Robinson, who had been Norris's senior counsel, signed the bill into law that year. The next legal changes for the LGBT community came in the form of the Equality Act 1988 and the Equal Status Act 2000, which both named sexual orientation as a protected minority and a basis upon which discrimination is strictly not allowed. So now there was some sort of protection for LGBT people in law, if not widespread in society. Simply being gay or lesbian was no longer illegal. In most sectors, it would be illegal to treat gay employees or prospective employees differently on the basis of their orientation. Of course, there is a religious exemption, which posed problems in the education sector. See, Ireland's schools are all religious-based. Some are multi-denominational schools but to date there are no non-denominational schools in the country. So every school is somehow religiously aligned. Most schools have the patronage of the Catholic Church, and though all our teachers are paid by the government, hiring is up to the school boards, which are part of a religious institution. Therefore, it would in fact be possible to discriminate against prospective teachers if there was a question about their quote-unquote lifestyle not reflecting the ethos of the school. This problem in the law still remains to this day.
3: What do you want in a true crime podcast?
0: Do you want well-researched material, but an easy-to-follow format?
3: Do you want a bit of dark humor, but want sensitive topics handled, well, sensitively? Do you want hosts who are lactose intolerant, but eat macaroni and cheese anyway? Well, I think you might be looking for us. I'm Rachel.
0: And I'm Rebecca, and we're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Yours in Murder. And this isn't any old true crime podcast. I have a background in forensic science.
3: And I have a background in journalism. So we're able to combine our knowledge and bring you interesting new perspectives on cases.
0: Not that we're all serious. We have a bit of a dark sense of humor.
3: Just a bit. I mean, we like morbid jokes and cat jokes. Lots
0: of cat jokes. So if you're looking for something new and a bit out of the ordinary, check out Yours in Murder.
3: You can find us on all of your favorite podcatchers, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn.
0: You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website at yoursinmurder.net.
3: We hope to see you soon, and until next time, we are Yours in Murder.
2: So, with a certain amount of legal equality now established, there was another fight for rights brewing. The right for gay and lesbian relationships to be recognised by law and to benefit from the rights that legally recognised relationships accrue. Gay and lesbian Irish people should not have to worry about their partner being disinherited, if one should die, or not being named next of kin with the ability to make decisions in the cases of illness or incapacity, they should benefit from the tax regulations and be able to be recognized as a family, and be able to mingle finances if they choose, just like heterosexual couples. The 2004 Civil Registration Act specified that registrars could solemnize marriages between men and women. It was the first time that in Irish law this definition of marriage was included, although the courts had traditionally held that marriage was defined like this by the writers of the constitution. The whole idea of marriage equality had a sort of mixed reception. For so many years, marriage seemed utterly unattainable, and many LGBT people thought that marriage was an outdated institution anyway, just upholding the heteronormative and patriarchal status quo. Why would we want that? But many people just wanted to be able to live their lives without their orientation dictating what they could and could not do. In Ireland, the first attempt to have gay marriage recognised was a court case taken by Anne Louise Gilligan and Catherine Zapone, an American academic from Spokane. The couple had been married legally in Canada, and when the couple moved back to Gilligan's home in Ireland, they wanted that marriage recognised. Their target was the Irish revenue. They had tried to apply for tax credits that would be due to a married couple, but they were refused by the revenue service. So off to court they went. The 3rd of October 2006 was their first appearance before the High Court. Their legal team argued not only should their marriage be recognised, but also that the limiting of marriage to heterosexual couples was discriminatory. The court disagreed. Ms. Justice Dunn declared that, although the Constitution was a living document, the definition of marriage had been the same from the inception of the state in 1937, and was reiterated in the 2004 Civil Registration Act. Furthermore, she said that there was no consensus regarding same-sex marriage emerging in Europe, and that therefore it would be up to the legislature to make the decision as to whether and how same-sex marriage would be allowed. The appeal was heard in the Supreme Court in 2012, and although there were some intervening developments, the court maintained its position. This was an issue for the government to sort out, and the government was acting on the advice that they had been given by the Attorney General. A referendum to change the Constitution would be required to allow for gay marriage. So, as the Zappone and Gilligan, or the Cal case as it was called, made its way through the courts, a few other movements began. First was the push for civil partnership, spearheaded by Glen, the Gay and Lesbian Equality Network, and the Marriage Equality Movement, supported by activist groups like LGBT Noise and Students' Unions. These movements weren't without their tensions, however. The LGBT community is like any other community. It's varied, and it can't be expected to speak with one voice. Glen were pushing for civil partnership while others refused to settle or questioned whether gays even wanted to engage with the outdated, patriarchal, heteronormative institutions such as marriage. But the main issues that needed to be addressed were the underlying issues of equality and how that impacts on people's rights and their families. Gay people and their families should have the same protection as straight couples. So, Though there were disagreements and tensions in some quarters, everyone was working towards the goal of equality and protection for LGBT people in Ireland. In 2010, the, wait for it, Civil Partnership and Certain Rights and Obligations of Cohabitants Act was introduced. It allowed same-sex couples to enter into a civil partnership, what many considered to be marriage light and set out some rules for long-term cohabiting couples as well. There were significant differences, however, between civil partnership and marriage, which, for one, did not at all deal with the idea of children. This was not only to skirt around controversy, but also because the family, based on marriage, has a special protected status in the Irish constitution, and it would be important to maintain that status – Therefore, civil partnership would never be able to enjoy all the rights that a marriage would. There was tension in the gay community about the Act, given that it was relegating same-sex relationships to a second-class level, below that of marriage. But in the short term, it did address issues that were being experienced on the ground by gay couples, like inheritance issues, being able to make medical decisions and getting visas for partners from outside the state. A lot of people thought of civil partnership as a stepping stone to the provision of full marriage equality, but while that was ongoing, there were still a section of the community pointing out that equality was what was required and deserved by LGBT people in Ireland. The campaign for marriage equality continued on, and the government seemed to be willing enough to come out in favour of it. However, action, when it comes to the Irish government, is another thing altogether. Rather than just go ahead and call a referendum, it was decided that a further step was required. The issue would be discussed at a constitutional convention. This allowed politicians to play both sides of the fence for a bit. Politicians had basically accepted the idea that there had to be a referendum to allow for same-sex marriage, which meant that they were also able to say, oh yeah, I'd vote for that legislation, but alas, our constitution forbids it. In another ingenious step further, the call for the referendum came from the Constitutional Convention, rather than for government. This was yet another way for the politicians to step further away from any accusation that they might come under that they themselves had called the referendum. So they could pacify those calling for equality and rights for LGBT people while maintaining support from the status quo of conservatism. They were talking from both sides of their mouths. But that was what the situation was, and to be honest, that's what the situation is, typically, with the Irish governments. The convention was deemed a huge success for those campaigning for marriage equality. The weekend that they debated this in May 2013 was the most covered by the press. People from the main organisations, Glenn, and some children of same-sex couples spoke. It was moving – and minds were definitely changed, although given the makeup of the convention itself, which was one third politicians, most of whom supported gay marriage, experts appointed by the government, and one third members of the public, this makeup meant that support for holding a referendum was probably a foregone conclusion. In and around 80% of those present voted in favour of it, and for providing rights to parents in same-sex relationships. They went further, though, and said that the government was required to legislate for same-sex marriage, not just allowed to. In December of the same year, the PM, or Taoiseach and the Kenny, announced that a referendum would be held on the matter not later than May 2015. The campaign continued on this time with a goal in mind and with the knowledge that the LGBT community would have to stand as a whole in front of all of their friends and family and basically ask for approval and acceptance. This would be a campaign for hearts and minds of friends and neighbours and family. Mm -hmm. The next event of note in this story of Irish pride isn't really a legal one, though it has legal aspects, but it is important to tell you about, or remind you about, because it was, I think, one of the most galvanising moments of the marriage equality campaign. What became known as Pantygate happened on the 14th of January, 2014, on the Saturday Night Show, hosted by Brendan O'Connor on RTE. Panty Bliss is one of Ireland's best-known drag performers, And her alter ego, Rory O'Neill, owns Panty Bar, one of the most popular gay bars in Dublin and Church Street in the North City Centre. Panty was asked to do a performance on the show, and Rory was to be interviewed after by O'Connor. They were to discuss Rory's life and his experience growing up gay in Ireland, and how he got into drag, and what it was like living with AIDS. And then in the interview, Brendan asked him about homophobia, and asked him outright, who are these people? And Rory named names. Brita O'Brien and John Waters and the Iona Institute. Rory told them to feck off, to stop spending so much time trying to stop people from being happy, and that anyone who argues for whatever reason that gay people or gay families or gay relationships are in any way less than heterosexual relationships are homophobes. The show was pulled from the on-demand service on RTE Player. Oh wait, there is a legal aspect. RTE had received legal correspondence from the Iona Institute, as well as the journalist John Waters. Rory got letters too. They were crying defamation. Initially, he thought that the whole thing would just blow over, but it quickly became apparent that he, as a gay man, was being told that he could no longer name people or actions as homophobic. The next weekend, people gathered at Panty Bar to hear what the hell was going on. On the 25th of January, Brendan O'Connor read out an apology during his show. He said, quote, Now, on the Saturday night show two weeks ago, comments were made by a guest suggesting the journalist and broadcaster John Waters, Brida O'Brien, and some members of the Iona Institute are homophobic. The views are not the views of RTE, and we would like to apologize for any upset or distress caused to the individuals named or identified." It is an important part of the democratic debate that people must be able to hold dissenting views on controversial issues. End quote. A settlement was agreed between the so called injured parties and RTE, and state money was paid out for their upset. The issue was brought up and debated in the doll. Was Panty not free to state her genuinely held belief on air, on the national broadcaster, without repercussion? Just as others were able to express themselves regarding the gay community in other media, why did RTE have to hand over money to them? Was this an attempt to stifle debate? One of those named by Panty, Brida O'Brien, explained, quote, We did not bring legal action against RTE. It never went to court, as we knew it would not, because RTE had breached basic rules of fairness and justice by encouraging Rory O'Neill to identify specific people as homophobic, who were not there to defend themselves. We asked for a simple clarification and apology. T E refused, and when it appeared that Ortee was going to continue to be intransigent, we said that we would be forced to defend our good names through the courts if necessary. We knew there was absolutely no evidence that anyone in Iona is homophobic. Homophobia is a very serious charge, one which signals that someone has an irrational fear and hatred of people who are gay, if the unjust, unfair allegation was allowed to stand, it would mean that people would be cowed and become fearful of expressing support for marriage remaining a commitment between men and women. The newspapers were not reporting on this issue, but it was spreading like wildfire across social media, and the lack of mainstream attention to Pantygate prompted Senator Averill Power to bring the issue up under parliamentary privilege in the Upper House of Parliament in the Shannon. The papers covered Averill's criticisms then, now that they no longer feared being sued by the deep-pocketed Iona Institute. News of the 85,000 euro payout finally hit the public, and the Saturday night show decided to host a debate about homophobia on the 1st of February. That same night, Panty Bliss took to the stage of the Abbey and delivered her noble call on the final night of the run of the play The Risen People. There she was, six foot forever, in sparkling heels and a muted purple dress, standing in front of representations of the 1913 disenfranchised workers, struggling against oppression. And then she began speaking. Now, guys, I was going to quote this noble call, but I think it's important to be reminded exactly what Panty said and how she said it. And so buckle in, because for the next 10 minutes, you're going to hear Panty's noble call.
4: We are delighted to welcome to the stage Ireland's most fabulous drag queen and famous activist, Panty. Hello, my name is Panty and um, for the benefit of the visually impaired or the incredibly naive. I am a drag queen. I am also a, well, I, would, I guess a performer of sorts and um, an accidental and occasional gay rights activist. Um, as you may have already gathered, I am also painfully middle class. My father was a country vet, I went to a nice, School and afterwards, I went to that most middle class of institutions, an art college. And although this may surprise some of you, I have always found gainful employment in my chosen field, gender discombobulation. <laughs> so, the kind of grinding, abject poverty that we saw so powerfully on stage tonight is something that I can thankfully say. I have no experience of, (laughs) but I do know a little something about oppression, or at least oppression is something that I can relate to. Now, I am not, of course, for a minute going to compare my situation to Dublin workers in 1913, but I do know what it feels like to be put in your place. Have any of you Ever been standing at a pedestrian crossing when a car goes by and in it are a bunch of lads. And they lean out the window as they go by and shout fag and throw a milk carton at you. Now, it doesn't really hurt. I mean, after all, it's just a wet carton and in many ways they're right. I am a fag. (laughs) So it doesn't hurt, but it feels oppressive. And when it really does hurt, is afterwards. Because it's afterwards that then I wonder and worry and obsess over what was it about me? I mean, what did they see in me? What was it that gave me away? (laughs) And I hate myself for wondering that. It feels oppressive and... The next time that I'm standing at a pedestrian crossing, I hate myself for it, but I check myself to see what is it about me that gives the gay away, and I check myself to make sure that I'm not doing it this time. Have any of you ever come home in the evening and turned on the television, and there is a panel of people, you know, nice people, respectable people, smart people, the kind of people who probably make good neighbourly neighbours, the kind of people who write for newspapers, and they're all sitting around and they are having a reasoned debate on the television, a reasoned debate about you about what kind of person you are, about whether or not you're capable of being a good parent, about whether you want to destroy marriage, about whether or not you're safe around children, about you know, whether or not God herself thinks you're an abomination, about whether, in fact, maybe you are intrinsically disordered. And even the nice TV presenter lady that you feel is like almost a friend because you see her being nice on TV all the time, Even she thinks it's perfectly okay that they're all having this reasoned debate about you and about who you are and about what rights you deserve or don't deserve. And that feels oppressive. Have you ever been on a crowded train with one of your best gay friends and inside a tiny part of you is cringing because he is being so gay and you find yourself trying to compensate for his gayness by butching up a little or by trying to steer the conversation onto safer, straighter territory. And this is you who have spent the last 35 years of your life trying to be the best gay possible and yet there is still this small part of you that is embarrassed by his gayness and I hate myself for that and that feels oppressive and when I am standing at a pedestrian bloody life I am checking myself. Have you ever gone into your favourite neighbourhood cafe with the paper that you buy every day and you open it up and inside is a 500 word opinion written by a nice middle class woman, the kind of woman who probably gives to charity, the kind of woman who you would be totally happy to leave your children with. And she is arguing over 500 words so reasonably about whether or not you should be treated less than everybody else. About arguing that you should be given fewer rights than everybody else. And when you read that, and then the woman at the next table gets up and excuses herself to squeeze by you and smiles at you. And you smile back and nod and say no problem. And inside you wonder to yourself, does she... Think that about me too. And that feels oppressive. And you go outside and you stand at the pedestrian crossing and you check yourself. And I hate myself for that. Have you ever turned on the computer and you see videos of people who are just like You in countries that are far away and countries that are not far away at all, and they are being imprisoned and beaten and tortured and murdered and executed because they are just like you. And that feels oppressive. Three weeks ago, I was on the television, and I said that I believe that people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less or treated differently are, in my gay opinion, homophobic. Now, some people, people who actively campaign for gay people to be treated less under the law took great exception to that characterization and they threatened legal action against me and RTE. Now, RTE, in its wisdom, decided incredibly quickly to hand over a huge sum of money to make it all go away. I haven't been quite so lucky. And for the last three weeks, I have been lectured to by heterosexual people about what homophobia is and about who is allowed to identify it. Straight people have lined up ministers... Uh, Senators, barristers, journalists have lined up to tell me what homophobia is and to tell me what I am allowed to feel oppressed by. People who have never experienced homophobia in their lives, people who have never checked themselves at a pedestrian crossing have told me that unless I am being thrown into prison or herded onto a cattle truck, then it is not homophobia. And that feels oppressive. And so now, Irish gay people, we find ourselves in this ludicrous situation where we are not only not allowed to say publicly what we feel oppressed by, we're not even allowed to think it, because the very definition, our definition, has been disallowed by our betters. And for the last three weeks, I've been denounced from the floor of the Erachtas to newspaper columns to the seething morass of internet commentary, denounced for using hate speech because I dare to use the word homophobia and a jumped up queer like me should know that the word homophobia is no longer available to gay people which is a spectacular and neat Orwellian trick because now it turns out that gay people are not the victims of homophobia homophobes are the victims (laughs) of homophobia to say that it's not true, because I don't hate you. (laughs) I do, it is true, believe that almost all of you are probably homophobes. But I'm a homophobe. I mean, it would be incredible if we weren't. I mean, to grow up in a society that is overwhelmingly and stiflingly homophobic and to somehow escape unscathed would be miraculous. So I don't hate you because you're homophobes. I actually admire you. I admire you because most of you are only a bit homophobic. And to be (laughs) honest, considering the circumstances, that is pretty good going. But I do sometimes hate myself. I hate myself because I fucking check myself when standing at pedestrian crossings. And sometimes I hate you for doing that to me, but not right now. Right now, I like you all very much for giving me a few moments of your time, and for that, I thank you.
2: So finally, in January 2015, the government announced that the Referendum for Marriage Equality would be held on the 22nd of May that year. The Referendum Commission stated that if the 34th Amendment of the Constitution passed, it would mean 1. Two people of the opposite sex or the same sex would be able to marry each other. 2. That other detailed rules about who may marry will continue to be set out in legislation. 3 the constitutional status of marriage will remain unchanged, four, a marriage between two people of the same sex will have the same status under the constitution as a marriage between a man and a woman, and five, married couples of the opposite sex or of the same sex will be recognised as a family and be entitled to the constitutional protection for families. The debate was an emotive one and echoed what was going on around the time of Pantygate, the conservative religious folk were crying out, think of the children! And there were signs everywhere saying that kids deserved a mom and dad and all that kind of nonsense, while the LGBT community and their allies continued to knock on doors, talk to their grandparents, and fly home to vote. On the day, just over 60% of the registered voters turned up to the polls, which is actually quite high and we all sat by the TV or laptops refreshing the little maps of Ireland over and over and over as the count went on. People stayed up to watch it and were up early the next morning to continue finding out the results. County after county, yeses were returned. 62% of people had voted to legalise same-sex marriage. Every county in the country, bar one, Leitrim, returned a yes vote, as the announcement was made in the capital, Dublin, people poured out onto the streets. There was an organized count watch going on in Dublin Castle, and people just gravitated that way, carrying pride flags, holding hands, and crying as they made their way through town. Panty strode across the town to the castle, and Anne Louise Gilligan and Catherine Zipone and David Norris and Alva Smith, and the activists and leaders of LGBT groups were there along with other politicians. It was like the best pride ever, a whole month early. Today, our Taoiseach, our Prime Minister, is a very casually gay man. He came out in the run-up to the referendum and managed to secure government leadership only months later, really. There are still problems, there are still battles for equality, there are still assaults. But it's a long time since Declan Flynn was beaten to death in the park at night. There have been many casualties along the road and along the years. LGBT kids still suffer from higher levels of mental health problems. There's little funding for resources and the trans community is still fighting hard for just a little recognition and protection. But one thing I learned from the marriage equality campaign is that we are all each other's allies and we can all stand together for equality. We are all welcome and we are all worthy. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea Podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review in Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod, and you can send in any questions, comments, or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. Also, think about joining in the Facebook discussion group for updates and interesting articles. I love to hear from you guys, so don't be shy. First and foremost this week, Thanks go out to the Irish Queer Archive, which has made available every newspaper cutting relating to Declan Flynn's murder, and the subsequent trial. Without this, I would not have been able to tell his story. The link to this material is in the show notes, and I'd love if you could show them some support. Thanks also to Una Mullally for her lovely book, In the Name of Love, written in the run-up to the marriage referendum in 2015, which contains interviews with the key players in the campaigns. I'd also like to take a moment to thank our sponsors on Patreon. Thank you especially this week to Cynthia Cooper and Emily Collins, two of our newest patrons. Your support means so much to me and helps to keep the bills for the podcast at bay. There's also some lovely little perks for everybody who donates, including monthly bonus content and swag. Check it out and throw a few bucks in the tip jar if you can. And now to our five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you to AJ Vieira... A J V I E I R A. Sorry, that's really wrong, but it's the best I can do. Um, I think you listened to the Carrie Babies episode. Yeah, it's a really awful situation, um, and hopefully one that is slowly changing here in Ireland. Thank you for your five stars. Thank you to Suzanne from the In God They Trusted podcast. Your words are very kind, uh, especially coming from such a great podcaster like yourself. So thank you very much for listening, Suzanne. That's In God They Trusted and also 911 Moms Pod. Excellent podcast as well. Thank you to Monkey Jones 1980. Oh, who's Erica from Martinis and the Macab. Another excellent podcast. I'd check that one out too. Thank you for your five stars there, Erica.
1: Thank you
2: to the ladies over at the something cheeky podcast it's like this is this is the podcast review review edition of five star reviews (laughs) so thank you very much um, for that go check out the something cheeky pods as well excellent and thank you to michael mong i'm very happy to be in your true crime podcast rotation thank you very much for your five stars and your kind words so thanks again to ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering as always Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Next week, we head back in time to a town I personally associate with pride, but we'll be looking at it well, well before that was a thing. And it seems to be a place you should most certainly mind your luggage. Till then, don't do anything I wouldn't do.